It's chilly. Uh, let's turn to Matthew 5. As you know, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And we are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll remember, we uh, covered the Beatitudes. And then uh, Jesus affirmed strongly that he was not going to be uh, undermining the law. That, uh, you know, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. He says, I'm keeping the law. And he says, uh, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts giving examples, which we started last week. Uh, last week was on murder. And his point was, you know, it's not just uh, just the act of literally murdering somebody, but that a hatred is included in that. And so to, to hate someone or to uh, um, speak angrily towards them is also counted as, as murder. And instead, we should uh, seek, seek reconciliation with people. So we're on, we're on our second of the two examples of this uh, a greater or even the, this true righteousness that, uh, that Jesus spoke of. So let's read our passage and uh, then let's pray. We are in verses 27 through 30. So Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body and for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, I just ask your blessing on this time, Lord. I pray that uh, you would prevent falsehood, um, that you would uh, just let, let truth come out. I pray that it would be clear what comes from your scripture, that it would not be uh, my thoughts, but people have your word just uh, make sense, and it, it just... It comes comes out. And then that you would do work of, of convicting and blessing and, you know, just do that work in us, Lord. So uh, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So we're asking your blessing that uh, our time in, in your word would be, would be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I caught Wayne as he came in. He goes, oh, this is a good one, isn't it? You know, you know, he's saying about that I was preaching and uh, he knew this is a good one. Uh, as we just read, there is some uh, pretty weighty, uh, heavy, heavy things here. Uh, I'm trying for consistency's sake, uh, trying to a little bit follow kind of what Aaron had started. You know, there's a traditional teaching. You've heard that it was said. And then Jesus kind of uh, gives a radical teaching. You know, he says, yeah, but this is what I say to you. He, he takes it takes it further, um, or he says, don't do it at all, or he says, like, do this instead. Um, and then there's there's an obedience that's uh, that's kind of kind of pressed on us. You know, given that this is what true righteousness really is, uh, this is this is how you should respond. You know, a radical obedience. Um, so uh, it's pretty straightforward at the beginning. The traditional teaching in verse 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now, I want to reaffirm what, uh, what uh, Aaron was saying last week. Uh, Jesus is not taking shots at the law. All right? This is, a, this is a reference of the law where one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not commit adultery. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he's not taking shots at the law. And uh, let me just try to um, prove that to you. In verses 17 through 19, just a few verses earlier, Jesus has been very emphatic. He's not being done with the law. He affirms the law, and every bit of it stands. You know, So that would be very odd if Jesus turns around and does exactly what he just said he's not going to do. Also, I want you to notice, um, if you think about when the Bible, specifically the New Testament, quotes Scripture, it usually quotes it with a certain type of introduction. It usually says something like, it is written, or you've heard that David said, or you've heard that Moses said. But each of these times, the Scripture reference is introduced by, you have heard, 
You have heard it said. You have heard that the ancients were told. You have heard, you have heard, you have heard. That's a different introduction to Scripture than we usually see. And I think that's because Jesus isn't so much referring to the law itself, but as to how the scribes and Pharisees treated the law. He's not taking shots at the law itself, as seen in the fact that he's not introducing it as Scripture per se, even though he is referencing Scripture. I would also point out, and this only happens once, but in the final, there's six different uh, case studies, so to speak, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Six different examples. In the final one, the part that he refers to is more than just Scripture. He quotes, you shall love your neighbor. That's Scripture. But he also says, and hate your enemy. That's not Scripture. So at least in that case, what Jesus is referring to is Scripture and then some. Which again to me is evidence that he's not taking shots at the law. He's taking shots at how the Pharisees and the scribes treated the law. All right, And that's kind of important. Even though he's quoting the law, it's not so much the law itself as how the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted it. Um, so the traditional teaching, no adultery. And, and that corresponds to the law. That's, that's what it said. But Jesus goes on, and here's his radical teaching in verse uh, 28. <clears throat> but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we might not even say that it's radical so much as Jesus is getting at the true meaning of the law or the heart of the law. Now let's define lust. Lust uh, could be translated just as easily as desire. You know, it's, it's not always, we use the word lust in a sexual context. But uh, the word uh, could be in many different contexts. When you desire something. Now notice also that he speaks of looking with lust, or looking, it could be translated, in order to lust. So there seems to be an intentional looking, you know. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, desire itself maybe, but it's when you're trying to satisfy that desire by intentionally looking at a woman uh, to lust. Uh, it also is worth notice, uh, noting that, you know, the word doesn't uh, uh, come up in the Bible, but in our culture... Um, pornography is a big deal. And it's worth noting and just saying up front, pornography has to be included in this. You know, that is a looking at a woman with the intention of lusting. It's not appropriate. It, it's included in this, and it's included as adultery. Um, now, I want to point out the similarities between these first two examples. Last week, we covered hatred and um, murder and the heart of murder being hatred. Here we're covering adultery with the heart of that uh, being expressed in, in lust. Now there's a pattern happening here. It's, it's very similar, which I don't think it's going to be quite the same in, in following examples. But in both these cases, Jesus essentially includes the desire for the sin with the sin itself. You know, uh, I, could, I could very easily understand hatred as the desire for murder. Even if we don't understand it as such, even if you aren't wishing somebody to die, you know, it's you can like it's not a it's not a reach. You know, when you're hating somebody, you're wishing ill on them. You're wishing bad things to happen to them. You're wishing for them to uh, be punished and to suffer for for whatever reason. The ultimate suffering, the ultimate evil that you could wish on somebody is for them to die. So, so hatred is really just the desire for murder. And it's more explicit here. Lust is essentially the, the desire for adultery. So in both of these cases, we see a pattern where Jesus says, not just is the act itself, but the desire for that act. It's, it's the same thing. And Jesus counts that as the sin. Now, now, at least in the case of lust, it explicitly says that lust is adultery in the heart. So it doesn't become sin only with the act itself. You're not sinning only when you actually do the thing. 
You're sinning when in your heart you want to do the thing. Sin is in the heart. Now, this might not be particularly uh, you know, controversial, but I, a couple illustrations. As a gardener, there's always a war with weeds, right? Now, it's not a weed only at some certain stage of development, right? It's not like I don't say, oh, that's okay. It hasn't flowered yet. That weed's okay. It hasn't produced seeds yet. A weed is a weed. And you know what? If I can prevent seeds from even getting into my garden at all, I'm all for it. If I can prevent that seed from even sprouting, I'm all for it. Because a weed is a weed. And it doesn't matter what stage of development it is. A weed is a weed. And I see that very much here. It doesn't matter if sin hasn't reached the stage of development where you're actually acting on it. It's still sin. It may be in the infant stages of development, but a weed is a weed. Get it out. It's still sin. Another illustration. Um, perhaps we've heard the, the story of the child who technically obeys, but then he has something really sassy to say afterwards. You know, you say, sit down at the dinner table, but I don't like it, you know, or something of the fact, but, but inside I'm standing, sit down, okay, but in my heart I'm standing, you know, something of the fact, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, stories like that, I'm sure I will have my own stories to tell soon, you know, <laughs> um, but are, as a parent, or from the outside looking in, are you particularly impressed with that child because he technically did what he was told? No, we all recognize that that's still completely defiant, and, you know, he might as well have disobeyed, or she might as well have disobeyed. Because although they technically didn't disobey, their heart was completely disobeying. They might have technically submitted, but their heart was rampant with non-submission, right? That's just what's going on here. You know, God says don't commit adultery. Okay, I won't technically commit adultery, but in my heart I'm just going to allow myself to desire it? No. No. A weed is a weed. It's still sin. So lust is adultery too. Hatred is murder too. Now let's get into our obedience in verses 29 through 30. We've got to move beyond information. Um, I don't find verses uh, 28, 27 and 28 particularly controversial, particularly difficult. It kind of makes sense. It's strong, you know, it's um, significant, but I have no arguments. It's pretty much straightforward. The Bible says not to commit adultery, and Jesus says, well, you know, you should also include the desire for adultery in your heart as sin. Okay. Just information so far. Lust is adultery. So what? Well, we all know that the assumed point is that lust should be resisted just the same as adultery. The Bible says don't commit adultery. Well, lust is adultery too. Well, you should probably also try not to lust. But let's remember the context. And the context is verse 20, or that's what I'd like to particularly highlight, because I feel like the issue of murder and hatred, as well as the issue of adultery and lust, are really just illustrations, are really just examples of what Jesus says in verse 20. Basically, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. True righteousness is being defined as opposed to that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Okay, you've heard it said. This is how the Pharisees and the scribes treat this sin, and this sin, and this sin. But truly and actually, ultimately, this is what true righteousness is. The right, this righteousness, this true righteousness, is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this statement may trigger some alarm bells for you, but stick with me, and I hope that will be addressed adequately. So he's giving us now, lust is adultery too, so naturally you need to avoid it. So he's going to give us some measures for pursuing this righteousness. We must be truly righteous to get into the kingdom of heaven. 
And true righteousness means not only do you not commit adultery, but you don't lust either. Okay, well, then I must not lust in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. All right. All right. Here's some measures for pursuing this righteousness. Remove the stumbling block, whatever it is. Anything that snares us in sin should be ruthlessly removed from us, even if it is our eyes and hands. Now, now Aaron was saying a radical obedience, but I changed it to a ruthless obedience. Uh, Does that seem fair? You know, he says, cut out your eyes. Cut off your hand. Radical just uh, didn't seem strong enough to me. Ruthless. A ruthless obedience. Anything that snares us in sin should be ruthlessly removed from us. I don't care if it's your eyes. Cut out your eyes. I don't care if it's your hand. Cut off your hand. Because in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you need true righteousness. And that's not it. Do whatever you got to do. Now, the first statement clearly connects to the issue of lust. Verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay, eyes are the tool that we use for lusting. So he starts with that. But he clearly moves beyond the context of lusting. So we've got a bigger principle going on here. Because the second statement clearly broadens the application beyond the lust context, as if to say, whatever makes you stumble, remove it. So the text has taken us beyond the immediate context. The immediate context is lust. So do whatever you have to do to get lust out of you. And by the way, it's not just about lust. I don't care if it's your hand that causes you to sin. Cut it out. You know, get rid of it. So it's not just about eyes and hands. It's about anything. Whatever makes you stumble, cut it out. Because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. The idea pretty clearly being if you leave that part of your body and it makes you sin, you're going to go to hell. So like, what was it worth? Now there's some issues arising from this. There's some issues arising from the ruthlessness of these measures. Jesus says, you want to be truly righteous? Well, do whatever it takes. Cut off your hands gouge out your eyes. What? <laughs> now, that, that raises some issues. And so for a minute here, I want, I want you to just walk with me as we kind of wrestle with this on multiple levels. You know? The first issue, if I can title it, that cannot be literal, right? Is he really telling us to literally cut out our eyes? I dare say probably none of us have ever stood in front of the mirror with your steak knife actually contemplating whether you should cut your eyes out, right? Probably hasn't happened. We just automatically think that 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 can't be literal. Cut out my eyes? Could much of our objection be boiled down to, that's just ridiculous? Perhaps we cruise right through it. It's so outlandish that it subconsciously doesn't even register. You've never even taken it seriously enough to argue with it. Or if you have thought about it, you are quickly satisfied to call it hyperbole, an extreme but not literal statement made more for effect. No, not meant to be taken literal. It's just really, really strong, so it like has an effect. You know, A figure of speech, an expression. But can we prove that? Does the text give us reasons to believe we shouldn't actually gouge our eyes out? It's dangerous to assume Jesus doesn't mean what he says just because it's crazy. That's how we wiggle our way out of teachings we don't like, you know? I've done it before. You're reading the Bible and you're just like, that's, that's weird. And you move on. That, that's a dangerous way to read the Bible. If the Bible says something like, we kind of need to have a reason for why does it not mean what it says? And what it says is, cut your eyes out. Cut off your hand. He couldn't have been serious, right? Now, even if it is hyperbole, it's hyperbole for effect. 
it's certainly not hyperbole, so we can say, phew, it's just hyperbole. Don't worry about it. Even if it is hyperbole and not literal, it's meant to punch you in the gut and say, what? So if we just feel all better and, oh, oh, phew, he didn't mean it. Like, we might be missing it. Why can't it be literal? Again, you're wrestling with me. I know we all just think it can't be literal, but do we have reasons? What's wrong with the logic? If your eye causes you to sin and you go to hell, therefore, is it not better to cut out your eye? I think the logic's pretty good. Well, in truth, it isn't literal. <laughs> Here's why. Throughout 2,000 years of history, I know very few who have actually cut out their eyes or cut off their hands. And more importantly, in the Bible, I don't see anybody actually cutting off their hands and gouging out their eyes. If this was meant to be taken literally, I think there'd be something in the book of Acts where this guy came to faith and we cut his eyes out. You know, um, it's not there. Also, we've just been learning that sin is of the heart. Lust is adultery in the heart. So if sin is of the heart, it's not really helped by amputations. Your eye didn't cause you to sin. Your heart did. So cutting out your eye isn't particularly helpful. But here's the clincher for me. I hadn't really necessarily noticed this before. It doesn't say if your eye makes you stumble. It says if your right eye makes you stumble. Now, that's very weird. I've never sinned with just my right eye. My left eye's always been right there with it. Um, and when I've sinned with my hands, it's usually not just my right hand. My left hand is right there, too. Um, immediately, this kind of like, that, that doesn't even make sense. What does it being your right eye have to do with it? Again, I've never sinned with just my right eye. When I sin, it's with both my eyes. Same for my hands. The reference to your right shows that this is more an expression of argumentation as if to say, if anything makes you sin, even if it's your right eye, you know, the thing, the, the right as opposed to the left is, is classically in the Bible and even in you know, culturally, that's like, that's best. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. Why? Because the right is probably by defer deference to most of us being right-handers. Sorry to those of you who are left-handers. You know, but culturally, most of us are right-handers, so the right becomes the more dear, you know? So there's kind of an argumentation that, like, if anything makes you sin, even if it's your right eye, even if it's your right hand, Cut it off. But, it's, but I think the fact that he references your right eye is a pretty strong signal. It's not literal. Because it was never literally your right eye that made you sin. It was always both your eyes. So it's not, it's not literal. I'm, I'm, I'm well convinced. I see things in the text. It's not meant to be applied by going and gouging your eyes out. But there's another problem here. There's another issue arising out of this. And that's what I've titled, uh, that's not biblical. Um, you may have had some, as I have had, like some, some issues with this. Like this is really, there's some theological issues with this. Verse 20 sets up a greater righteousness as a standard for admittance to the kingdom of heaven. Does that bother you with your understanding of theology? Does that bother you that Jesus is saying, you need to be very, very righteous to get to heaven. If you spend any time in the church, that's like, that's not right. But there it is. And then verses 29 through 30 sets up very rigorous measures of personal discipline and sacrifice as the means of attaining that righteousness. Does that cause any theological issues? That's not how I was taught the gospel. In essence, Hell is avoided by avoiding sin, and heaven is gained by personal righteousness. If you've been around the church for very long, this may strike you as theologically problematic. It sounds very much like what we call legalism. 
The concept of salvation is a matter of personal effort and success in living up to the standard of the law. You basically earn or deserve salvation by being a good person. Now, I agree with you on the error of legalism, but for the moment, I want to push back by saying that we should not read our theology into Scripture. That's not good interpretation practice. We need to let Scripture say what it says. Now, I feel this tension. Again, we're still wrestling with this. I feel it strongly. This is, this is a problem. Jesus, how can you say this? But to be honest, I've had a hard time getting away from the conclusion that Jesus is demanding personal, lived-out righteousness as the prerequisite for heaven and ruthless self-discipline as the means of achieving that. I have a theological problem with this, but I don't see anything that in the text for me to take it any other way. That's what it says. So keep wrestling with me. A third issue I have, that's not realistic. Even apart from theological difficulties, I have experiential difficulties. When I play this out, it doesn't work. If I sin with my eye, am I already going to hell because I already sinned with my eye? So at that point, like, what does it matter if I gouge it out anyways? If my eye makes me stumble, that means I already stumbled. Does that mean I'm already going to hell? So, like, I might as well keep my eye anyways, you know, because I'm already going to hell. Um. Or what if I gouge my eye out, but then my hand sins? Was gouging my eye out all for nothing? Maybe I'm thinking too hard. But what about the basic premise? Stumbling sends me to hell. And if that's the case, I can't even imagine sufficient amputations to prevent that. Especially if the evil desires of my heart count as the evil itself. So besides the theological issues of like, that's... That's legalism. That's a works-based salvation. This just seems completely unrealistic with my experience with sin. If I'm going to go to hell for stumbling, it does not seem at all plausible that I am ever going to take enough parts off my body to ever stop this. And if it's from my heart, I'm really doomed. So, like, I, I don't, this, this isn't realistic. I can't live up to this. But there it is. Like, I'm, I'm struggling with this passage because I can't live up with, to it, but, like, that doesn't make it not true. There it is. If I stumble, I'm going to hell, and I must be very righteous to get to heaven. Now, perhaps forgiveness is the answer. We have to not sin and be very righteous. So when we fail, we seek forgiveness. Problem solved, right? Well, forgiveness is real, and I wholly Affirm forgiveness as a biblical doctrine. But if forgiveness is the whole answer, then he wouldn't have suggested amputations at all. Instead, he would have just told us to seek forgiveness. If your eye causes you to sin, ask for forgiveness. But he doesn't. He says, cut off your arm, gouge out your eye. So it seems like there's more going on here than just, like it's not, doesn't seem to be answered purely with forgiveness, although... I don't disagree with forgiveness. I completely affirm it. You know, it has a role in our lives as Christians, obviously. No, I think Jesus must have something in mind where amputations, even as hyperbole, are still relevant. So here's my answer. It kind of came to me last night. I was starting to get worried, you know. <laughs> it's Friday, it's Saturday, and I'm stumped. I'm dead serious. I'm, I'm, I'm stumped on this passage. I'm like, this doesn't work, but... I don't see anything else. This is what it says. But this thought came to my mind, and I hope, and I'd like to think that it was God answering my question. I wish I had more time to, like, prove whether this is, this is the answer. But I can say I feel like this, this, this concept I want to suggest is at least plausible in this passage. This answer is taught in other passages, and this answer makes it all better for me. It fits. It works. Where I take scripture as it says without having to say, no, he didn't mean that. And it works. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this answer. I wish I could have studied it more, but by all means, check it out. See if this works. See if this is scriptural. So let me introduce this answer by saying that 
maybe this ruthless measures isn't so ruthless and radical at all. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And then we say, oh my word, that's insane. That's nuts. That's crazy. It's not crazy at all. We do it all the time. Literally. We cut off parts of the body all the time. It's what we do in cancer, right? And I don't, I don't want to be trivial because cancer is something many of you have dealt with or are dealing with. But i got to use cancer as an illustration here. Sometimes when there is cancer in the body, there is one solution is that we can cut it out. It doesn't always work. You know, there's some scenarios of cancer where that's just an it's just unre it's not a viable solution. But sometimes it is. And when there's a diagnosis where the cancer can be cut out, we freely choose that option as a society. They're called ectomies. And there's a lot of them, you know, in cancer and in other areas of health. I looked up uh, on, online, like, types of ectomies. It was a long list. We cut parts of our body off if they're going to kill us all the time. This isn't so radical at all. We do it all the time. Why do we do this? Because, as relates to cancer, in the field of oncology, because we want to remove the cancer before it spreads to the rest of the body and kills you. If that's a viable solution, we pursue it. Cut it out. <laughs> that's just what Jesus is saying, except in relation to sin. Now, so, so here's, kind of, here's kind of my idea. Here's the thought that came to me, and it's a different perspective on sin. There's a moral to this illustration of cancer. And herein, I found something that started to crack this passage open to me. Remember, I'm struggling. This doesn't work, but at the same time, I don't feel like I can be exegetically honest and responsible and, and just say, oh, it doesn't mean that. It seems to say that. So here's where it started to crack open for me, a different perspective on sin. When I was thinking of how unrealistic it was to prevent sin, even for all the amputations in the world, I was thinking of sin in terms of individual violations quantifiable, countable transgressions. But when I think of sin more like cancer, the point is not individual actions, but more the big picture, a growing influence and power in me that is moving steadily and always to kill me. It starts to change here. Now, a supporting word study, and this is where in this passage I think it allows for a different perspective on sin. It doesn't prove it, but it allows for it. This word then in my translation is translated, if your right eye makes you stumble. That, that phrase, makes you stumble, is one word. All right? Now, one of the word pictures inherent in this word is that along a path, there is a rock sticking out of the path that causes people to trip or to stumble. All right, that's one word picture. And in that word picture, I'm kind of tempted to think, like, an individual, like, I tripped. So, like, a sin. A particular sin, it tripped me up and I sinned. But there's another word picture that's involved in that word translated as makes you stumble, and it's a picture of a trap or a snare for an animal. You know, so along some path that you think animals might pass, there's some sort of a of a of a of a noose, and in the center of the that noose or whatever, there's a little a little trip, right? There's a little bait that when it's tripped. Got him. All right? Now, in that word picture, it's not like a trapper does not set that out on the trail so that he can catch that animal over and over and over again. Catch it one time, and it's snared. It's trapped. It's caught. Now, in this word picture, it's more about the whole picture of that thing has you. You're caught, you're stuck, you're snared. 
So in that perspective, if I can apply that, and again, I'm saying this word allows for a different perspective on sin. By the way, they're both true. There are sins and there is sin. There are sins and there's the fact of being a sinner. Right? Both of those are true. But if I read this more in the lines of, if your eye snares you and you're caught, you're stuck in a sin, it starts to change my understanding. If I start to see it more as a cancer, it's not about individual violations. It's the fact of there is a sin in my life that I'm stuck in. I'm caught. I'm snared. I'm trapped. It starts to open things up for me. I think other scriptures support this. Without going to them, I think other scriptures support the idea that sin is not just individual violations and transgressions, but sin is also a power and an influence in us that is moving us, that has infected us, and wants to kill us. So let's deal with verse 20. That's part of my problem. Your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in order to get into heaven. I don't feel the need to rethink this much. I think it means what it says. You must be righteous to get into heaven. Now that still may be a little squirrely with our theology, but hang with me. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And that means so far, not even hating or lusting, not sinning in your heart. I think it means what it says. The question is, how will we ever be that righteous? How are we going to do that? So the way I'm understanding it, I have no problem with verse 20. You know, it kind of rubs my theology wrong, but when I think about it, I'm like, no, we have to be righteous to get into heaven. The question is, how will we ever get there? Now, 29 and 30 seem to suggest that the way we get there is gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands and anything else. I've already said it's not literal. But let's apply this analogy, this cancer analogy, thinking of sin not just as individual acts, but thinking of sin as something that has infected us, that has caught us, that has trapped us, that has snared us. Thinking of sin like cancer or a snare trap, if there is, we're, we're applying this to 29 and 30. And for me, applying this perspective on sin helps a lot. It solves things practically, experientially, and it solves things uh, theologically. You, d you decide if, if it works and we can chat more. Thinking of sin like cancer or a snare trap, here's the application. If there is a sin that has snared you, that you are stuck in, you do whatever you can to be free of that. And by whatever, I mean if it took gouging out your eyes, do it. You get rid of that because it will kill you. You will go to hell. Now, if this still rubs your theology wrong, let me suggest that this isn't really all that different than repentance. That's, uh, we understand repentance as forsaking sin. And with the right perspective, that's all this is. Doing whatever it takes to be rid of a sin that has snared me, that has trapped me, being willing to hypothetically gouge out my eye if that's what it took. I'm not sure that's any different than repentance. Repentance is changing your mind about sin. Repentance is forsaking sin. And that's not theologically problematic at all. That's what the Bible's been telling us all along. You need to forsake sin. And if that forsaking means you gouge out body parts, you do it. We understand repentance as forsaking sin. And with the right perspective, that's all this is. You are turning from sin so violently that you will amputate whatever it takes to be free of it. I don't believe in losing your salvation. But even if you are saved, wherever there is sin present, you kill it or it will kill you. Now, this creates problems, you know, for, for how can we say this to a Christian? But I'll just tell you where I'm at right now. 
If you've got a sin, if you consider yourself a Christian and you have a sin, and I'm not talking about individual transgressions, I'm talking about a sin that has snared you. Because you're stuck in this sin. You should be concerned. You need to forsake that sin. Because if that sin continues to snare you, I would fear that it may ultimately prove, prove that you're not a Christian. And so I don't have any problem with this verse. You cut that sin out or it will kill you. You will go to hell. So fight sin and fight it violently as an expression of repentance. Not work salvation, not legalism, but forsaking sin. That's... that's that's the Bible, you know. I don't, I, don't, I don't find any theological problem with that. And I don't find any experiential problem with that. Because I'm not talking about individual transgressions. I'm talking about forsaking sin. I can do that. And I can do that violently, profoundly, whatever it takes. The Bible does call us to that. Forsake sin. Fight it and fight it violently. Now, this is heavy. I would, I would count it a failure if it wasn't heavy. I would count this not successful a time in God's word if given this passage, we didn't feel some weight. I pray that God continues to make me feel this weight. Scott, you must kill that sin or you will go to hell. You are to continue repenting, Scott. And if you are harboring sin, if you are stuck in sin and you're accepting that, there's something to be scared of. There's something to be feared. I think we should feel weight. But there is grace. There is encouragement for the fight. So let me, let me give you some encouragement for this fight. And I don't give this that we can say, oh, that was really terrible, but let's sit in this grace and like, oh, okay, let's just... Let's get away from that for a minute. No, I'm giving you encouragement so you can walk and look at these hard things and you are strengthened to look that stuff in the face and say, I will go this. I will, I will look sin and I will fight sin because I'm scared of sin, but I'm going to do it because God has given me grace to embrace that fight and to go forward and to fight it. So here's some encouragement for the fight. Not so that you can ignore the fight, so that you, so, but so that you can be strengthened for the fight. And I'm going to take this out of the Sermon on the Mount, mostly. Again, I think the text gives us this encouragement. I don't have to, I don't have to work this in here. The text gives us this encouragement for the fight. First of all, if you feel the weight of the need for righteousness, again, Jesus has just told you, told us, you must be very righteous in order to go to heaven. And he's also told us, if there is sin that has you caught, stuck, you're going to go to hell. If therefore you hear that and you feel the weight of the need for righteousness, I must be righteous then. If you believe that without righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but will go to hell on account of your sins. Then hear this. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. That is Jesus' promise. That is strength for the fight. As I embrace the weight, you must be righteous. You must be done with sin, Scott. It is completely a logical response to say, I must be righteous. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to that, Jesus says, you will be satisfied. That is strength for the fight. Jesus says, you will be satisfied. If you are weighed down by this passage, if you were weighed down by the need for righteousness, if you're weighed down by the seriousness of the danger of sin, and you feel the weight of your own sin and failures, then remember Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what this is all about, right? I need to be righteous so I can get into the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, Jesus said, if you're poor in spirit because of that, yours is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is strength of the fight. That is grace to someone who feels like, oh, this is heavy. Yes, it is heavy. There's no way around that. But Jesus says, you shall be satisfied. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. Now, later in this sermon, Jesus is going to give one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Judge not, right? That's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Judge not. But the rest of that passage shows that we each have failings ourselves. The rest of that passage says, don't point out the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. He says, judge not lest you be judged. And the measure you use to everybody else is the measure that's going to be used to you. So what's that mean? Jesus has just laid down an incredibly high standard for righteousness. And if you happen to be particularly self-righteous and arrogant, you're going to run around and throw that in people's faces and say, oh, you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. And Jesus says, you know what? We've all failed. So I see in there a, a, a pushing of mercy. Be merciful with each other because you know what? You fail too. And if you want to have mercy, you better give mercy to other people. Well, that's a beatitude too. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Since we each fail ourselves, cut others some slack and be merciful. After the bit on not judging, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. This is grace for the standard. This is strength for the fight. He has just, Jesus has just laid out an essentially unrealistic standard of righteousness. Don't just not murder, you got to not hate too. Wow, you know? He just said, um, don't just not commit adultery, don't even lust. And he's going to give some more. He's going to say, um, turn the other cheek. He's going to say, love your enemies. Wow. Where does that leave us? Do you have any requests of God? Is there anything you might want to ask God, given that he said, you have to be righteous, and here's what it means? He has just given us an unrealistic standard of righteousness. Now, there's two solutions. Either we get forgiveness for our failings, which is true, but there's another solution, too. We get help. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Then hear this good word. Ask, and it will be given to you. If you've just heard the standard that says, you must be righteous, and by golly, it's really hard. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man among you, uh, uh, or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? That's ridiculous. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? I tell you what, if this is a standard, then I've got some requests. I need some help. And I don't have a problem with verse 20. Our righteousness does need to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes. And if I don't get that righteousness, I'm not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. But that doesn't mean that the standard, we just blow it away, you know, because I can't. No, there's another solution. I ask for help. And strength for the fight is God saying, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. You take care of your children when they ask you for something. Don't you think I will help you? So God says, God will help. By the way, 
and I'm going to read another passage into this because I can't help it. When Luke tells this passage, you know what the good gift is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. The standard for righteousness hasn't changed, but God has given us his Holy Spirit to work in us the fruits of the Spirit to help us to attain that righteousness. We're going to have failings, but he's going to help us. There is grace. There is strength to the fight. Now, I didn't study it much. I would have liked to. But you may know how the story ends. Matthew knows how the story ends. I was talking with Aaron about this last week. Matthew knows where this is going. He knows that it's going to chapter 26 and 27 and 28. Jesus is going to die. The preacher of this sermon, he is going to die. He is going to pay the penalty for our failings at righteousness. And to quote Romans 6, death he dies, he dies to sin once and for all. So all this, all this trouble with sin that we're having, Jesus went to the cross and beat it. You want strength to the fight? Christ went to the cross to beat it. And he did. The death he dies, he dies to sin once and for all. But he rose again too, right? So Romans 6 goes on. And as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The standard is righteousness. And you've got to be done with sin. The standard hasn't changed, but we've received help. This is why Jesus says, you must be born again. You must have God do a work in you where he changes your heart. This is the new covenant. This is the promise of God in the new covenant, that he will give you a new heart. That's help for this fight. You've got to live this righteousness, but God's going to say, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the fruits of the Spirit. There is help for the fight. You can do this in Christ. And you must do this. You must fight sin. Because if you don't, you're going to hell. That's what it says. And if you don't fight this, you're not going to heaven. That's what it says. there's grace for that fight you shall be satisfied you shall receive mercy you shall be comforted you shall receive mercy I guess I already said that one ask and it will be given to you fight sin or it will kill you there's no way around that and that's why I say this needs to remain weighty Fight sin or it will kill you. But you fight sin with the grace that God has given. Christian, fight sin. And if there's a sin that's snaring you, you know, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, by all means, talk to one of us. Deal with this. Most of our elders are gone this morning, but Matt's here, or you can catch up with them uh, next week or, or, or chat, chat with me. Um, I don't, again, I don't, I don't give these, these words of grace and help that we, to, to like say that the, the weight and the seriousness of that hard stuff is not true. It's true. Fight sin or it will kill you. That, that apply, applies to all of us. Um, decide today if you need to, need to deal with something and, and deal with it. With the help of brothers and sisters and with the grace that God supplies.